This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the National Basketball Association. The NBA topped $10 billion in revenue last season, in line with Major League Baseball, and behind only the NFL in terms of major sports leagues. And the initial headlines for the next media rights deal, which is coming in 2025, they suggest a 200% to 300% increase versus that previous contract. But what's particularly interesting about these data points is that they stand in sharp contrast to declining viewership numbers. Now, to break down the NBA, I'm joined by Ethan Strauss, and Ethan has been intimately involved with the league for the past decade. He's worked for the league, for ESPN, for The Athletic, and now independently with Substack. Ethan often writes about why the NBA, like other sports leagues, is not a traditional business. And for our conversation, we dive into that. We cover who and what made the NBA into the giant it is today, and whether that's getting stronger or less strong. Please enjoy this breakdown of the NBA. All right, Ethan, I love mixing in these sports league breakdowns with the traditional businesses we cover. On the surface, the NBA is literally just a game, but inside you have an ecosystem and stakeholders that look very different from what you would have at private businesses like a Disney or an Apple or whoever you want to pick. So we'll do our best to work through what that means at the league level, at the franchise level, at the player level. We'll weave in the fans maybe somewhere in there too. But maybe we could just start with your background and your ties to the league as both a fan and as a professional. I grew up playing basketball. My dad was a huge Knicks fan. And in San Diego, we didn't necessarily have a team. The Lakers were on television, but I I liked the Knicks in the 1990s. And it was just something nice that my dad and I could do, that we could enjoy these games. I have memories of sleeping on the couch waiting for that 9.30 a.m. tip-off between the Pacers and the Knicks in some big playoff game or just Sunday NBA and NBC game and just really positive associations. And out of college, a friend of a friend tells me that they do these jobs at the NBA for people out of college where all you do is read every article written about the league and you send out memos. I wanted to move to New York. It was a move to New York job. I was naive, like so many people are. So many of us who watch the movies and television shows, and we see that it's always 70 degrees, and on Sex in the City, they're drinking mimosas outside. It's not like that. It's a little more grim out there, but I was fooled. So every day at 3.30 a.m., I would wake up in my terrible Brooklyn apartment, read literally everything that was written about the NBA on the internet. And I mean, literally, because back then in 2008 and 2009, as tough as a task as that was, you could actually do it. So I would read everything and then I would send a memo to David Stern and everybody else in the league office about who they needed to kill. But 
that was what I did. I did it seven days a week, which doesn't even seem like it should be legal. It was a terrible job. I'm so happy that I did it, though. It exposed me to the world of the NBA. I didn't even know about beat writers or any of that. I didn't know there were these people who went from game to game, sitting courtside back then, getting paid to watch basketball. So that was my first inkling of, oh, this is a job you can do. Long story short, that was the germ of my interest in breaking into the NBA was actually being on the other side and being on the PR side and realizing that PR is miserable and I'd rather be a creator. That's impressive. And I know the road didn't stop there. It sounds like you hit us with the player element. Didn't quite make it to the league, but you have some experience in the game. You worked (laughs) inside the league. Let me play that forward. Let me play that forward a bit because I think you're talking to me in part because I've written about some of the business aspects of the NBA. And I think that came later a little bit. That came from I was a beat writer covering the Golden State Warriors on their magical dynasty run where they won championship after championship. And you start looking around for stories because everything is covered. I mean, exhaustively. I got yelled at by the news desk at ESPN because at a practice, Clay Thompson said that he liked to read Harry Potter. And I didn't write a news story about that. I didn't think it was notable that Clay Thompson enjoyed literally the most popular book at that time. But there was just a hunger for find a story here, find a story there. I began to get curious about other stories that nobody was talking about. And something I like to do, I like to look at something from a few years ago that maybe we didn't properly understand. And there's a bit of a statute of limitations that has run out and you can revisit it. And I started to get into that world of, okay, how does Nike operate? How do they overlap with the NBA? What happened with Steph Curry and Nike? Why was he with Nike? And then he goes to Under Armour, he takes off like a rocket ship, and he becomes a threat during that era to Nike's business. What happened there? And then similarly, how did the Warriors fall into the hands of Joe Lacob? Doesn't make sense. Joe Lacob, not a billionaire at the time, not even close, having to join forces with Peter Goober, kind of of a similar wealth level, big time Hollywood guy. How did they beat Larry Ellison out for purchase of the Golden State Warriors in an auction when Larry Ellison at that point in time was the wealthiest man in the state of California? That doesn't make sense. How did it happen? That story in particular, I think, was my window into the weird business world of this sport. You talk about its relationship to other corporations. You mentioned how it's like the businesses, but not quite. It's so old world. It's so old world. The Warriors were sold out of a shop run by a guy named Sal Galadioto, an older gentleman. And it's just this guy's office. And this is where he does the auction for who's going to buy the team. Every single one of these arenas is like a castle with a king or a queen, in the case of Jeannie Buss. And it is very informal. And you don't have some of the conditions you have in business where you've got shareholders. You don't have shareholders. If everybody's mad at James Dolan and how he's run the New York Knicks into the ground for decades, tough. He's the owner. That's how it works. He inherited it from his father. That's how it works. It is some old aristocratic stuff in the NBA overlapping and intersecting with modern business. And I think I was very attracted to that because it was like what we're all used to, but sort of not, and very much driven by the personalities involved. And it's notable that you get to a point in time where 
ESPN, a huge company, is incentivized to pay someone to cover literally every single detail about a team, including someone's personal interest in something like Harry Potter. But it's easy to take for granted that sports leagues were not always as big as they are today. One of the best examples is you go back to what some people consider to be this great era in the 1980s. The 1980s finals, those games weren't even televised live. They were on tape delay. There has been a massive shift, both in terms of the success of the league, but mostly in dollar terms. So when you look back, who were the key players and what were the key moments that you saw the league mature to what it is today? Is that behemoth and everything that you just described in detail there? The conventional story is pretty much true that the three main guys, and we'll add a fourth, God rest his soul, David Stern, the former commissioner. It's Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, David Stern. Those four guys, that would be the conventional wisdom on that story. And I think sometimes the conventional wisdom is correct, that there was this interesting friction, this interesting rivalry between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. It's funny, by coincidence, the most watched NBA game and the most watched NCAA game are both randomly in Salt Lake City. But there was that championship between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson in college that just a whole lot of people watched. I can't remember what the number was, but it was something. It's the most watched college game of all time by rating. That gave the NBA kind of a prefab marketing opportunity that these two guys out of college had caught so much heat. And obviously, back then especially, there was a little bit of an undertone of the white prodigy versus the black prodigy and the Celtics versus the glamorous Showtime Lakers that helped wrest the NBA from the doldrums, including David Stern's strong leadership and his ability to not just forge these relationships with broadcasters like the NBA and NBC, but he was so hands-on. He would just jump at you, scream at you if he thought his product was being mismanaged. I don't think it's like that right now in the NBA. I think that's a problem. I mean, these broadcasters would pay for the games. And in a way, you could even say they were the customer. But David Stern would try to micromanage them and make sure that they were putting his product forward. He made some recommendations to ESPN, ABC, when they got the rights from NBC that they should have taken. And there was a big blow up between those two factions because Sturm was trying to continue to micromanage ESPN's coverage of the league. And he was correct. He wanted Marv Albert on the calls. They didn't. They wanted some college football guy whose name I can barely remember who was a disaster. But that's how he was. He was a hands-on Caesar. And that's what worked for the NBA in combination with just the wonder strike of Michael Jordan's career. It was such a confluence of factors. It's that you had the table set, that you had the right commissioner, that you had everything modernizing when it came to television, that NBC Sports is the greatest broadcaster in the history of sports television. And this is ineffable. It's not reduced to statistics, but they can add a certain grandeur to the presentation. Michael Jordan's rise and Michael Jordan being the myth, that he was actually the myth itself, the true myth and how great he was and how he did it and the story and the quitting and the baseball and the coming back. I think it was just this tremendous confluence that took the NBA from tape delay in the 80s, as you say, to add its popularity apogee in the late 1990s. Stern 
took over in 84, ended his tenure in 2014. Incredible 30-year run there. When you think about the league now, can you just put some numbers around overall size, revenue-wise, in terms of media rights and how that might compare to some of the other leagues out there? The NBA national TV deal, this is the deal with ESPN, ABC, Turner, all combined is $2.7 billion per year. And that was a massive jump from the deal they had negotiated in 2007 prior. It was just at the right time too. The TV rights boom was really going when they inked that one in 2014, when it kicked in in 2016. I think the NFL contract is about $10 billion per year right now, and that was in 2021. So anything more recently signed is going to be higher, but that's a favorable comparison for the NBA as far as their TV take, considering how much more popular the NFL is than the NBA. Obviously, the NBA has more inventory, but a big-time NBA game on a weekend is about a tenth of the audience of a regular NFL game. So it's pretty good that the NBA, which signed its deal in 2014, is getting $2.7 billion, whereas the NFL, which signed their deal in 2021, is getting around $10 billion. It speaks to tremendous growth on the part of the NBA to go from the shadows to the sort of league that every major corporation wanted to sidle up to. It's a remarkable story. Yeah, I know the headlines out there now are that the NBA is looking to once again double that number on an annual basis or more than double that number. And we'll see how that turns out. The negotiating always starts high. Who wouldn't want to do that? That's something that's so tricky right now, Matt, is that I find it hard to know what that number is going to be because the NBA, frankly, plants a lot of stories. Mike Bass, their head honcho of PR, I don't say it as an insult, I say it as a compliment. He is tireless and he works the phones. He's somebody like David Stern who is not shy if you are on the other side of him. And so I often can't tell what's real and what's false. I think Disney and Bob Iger and I think uh, Discovery and Turner, I think they want to continue these relationships. I think it's quite possible that they'll pay through the nose to do it because you can better justify yourself as a streamer. And in the case of ESPN, you can maybe have this goal I call the NBA the last Pokemon effect where they've locked up all the other rights with all the other sports leagues. So maybe this deal you overpay. When you throw numbers out like that and they're saying triple the rights, I'm just looking at it. I'm going, you're starting to approach something that is comparable to the take the NFL gets. That doesn't make any kind of sense to me. That doesn't work numerically. Well, Ethan, you have to remember the NBA has so many more games, so you're spreading out on a per-game basis. It's actually quite affordable relative to the NFL. The Mike Bass got to you too. He's infiltrated the wires. There's one other interesting piece of it, which is you have the NBA that negotiates that national contract, which is ESPN and Turner, where the NFL really negotiates the contract across the board. So they you don't have the same regional networks which are showing local games, and therefore you have contracts with Disney, Fox, CBS, NBC. And in many ways, it's interesting because you have the NFL, which has fewer games, but the league at a national level controls much more of the distribution, whereas the NBA allows teams to negotiate what seems like at a regional level. That is evolving right now. There's been some havocs on the regional network side that are changing. How much does that play a role just in terms of league strategy and teams 
in terms of their own value, thinking about what they can negotiate at a regional level in distributing their own games? That is a tough question. How it will impact league strategy? Because it does accentuate the gap, I think, between the haves and the have-nots. If you're trying to command a kind of bundle as a regional sports network and you can justify slapping more money on that if it's the Warriors, if it's the Lakers, the Lakers have a big deal that they signed a while ago that extends far into the future. But I don't know what value some of these other teams can really command on a regional level. I've seen their viewership numbers in many instances. I remember when the Hornets were really bad, when they were the Bobcats back in the day, they were averaging maybe 11, 12,000 viewers. And I just think that that's more money leaking out of the smaller market teams, which might incentivize more of a revenue sharing strategy because there are more small time owners than there are big time owners. So theoretically, they will get their way. And anything like that is going to change the very structure of the sport and how players are signed and how teams are comprised. The death of the regional sports network writ large, I think, is going to disproportionately impact the smaller market teams. And for some additional context here, in 2017, ESPN reported that the Los Angeles Lakers made $150 million from their local media rights. Now compare this to the Memphis Grizzlies that same year, which only made $10 million in local media rights. So a 15x difference between LA and Memphis. Now, the NBA does have a revenue sharing agreement in place between all of its teams, but that agreement doesn't just balance out the revenue between all the teams. It's highly dependent on performance relative to projections. And in this particular year, the Lakers wrote a rep share check for almost $50 million, while the Grizzlies received the highest rep share check of $32 million. You referenced viewership more on the local level there, but... When you think about viewership at the national level, I think we're starting to see that decline across the board, no matter what you're watching and what you're tracking. How much has that mattered historically for these media deals? When you look back to 2014, you mentioned it was a good time to be signing a deal. It doesn't feel like as great of a time to be signing a deal now, but maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. How much do you think that will play a role in terms of those negotiations? It's going to be tens of billions of dollars not reaped. It's a tricky thing. It's a nuanced thing to communicate to people because ultimately what is overwhelmingly likely to happen is that the NBA signs a new TV deal and there will be a sticker shock for how much more it is than the last TV deal. And people will go, oh my God, anybody who said the NBA was having issues, totally way off. But if they had the viewership now that they had in 2014, hell that they had in 2016, they would be making tens of billions more, which, hey, none of us maybe really care how the net worth of Steve Ballmer is doing, but it would just be a different league. When you're raking in tens of billions more, you would have different choices. You could more easily blunt the blow of what's happening with the RSNs. Players would be making something crazy. I mean, you'd see players making $200 million a year. I'll throw that out there. If the league had the viewership now that it had in 2016, you could see players making $200 million, not over the life of a contract, but per year. So maybe that would be all too much and too decadent. I don't know. 
the quick and dirty way to explain it is that the league is about half the viewership that it had back then, roughly half on the big games. And it's a little complicated because Nielsen has changed their metrics of how they gauge such things. I think, frankly, a lot of the broadcasters whined so much that they got juiced numbers bequeathed unto them. And the advertisers lost that battle because the advertisers wanted the numbers to stay as they were, but they've added out-of-home ratings, basically, to collect more data and add more viewers who are in sports bars and hospitals and all these other places to juice the numbers, maybe by a double-digit percentage. And so right now, you're seeing all these headlines all over the place the last few years about viewership going up, whether it's an award show or whether it's the NFL. And a lot of it is what the NBA does with height, which is in shoes. The NBA doesn't tell you the height of a player in socks. The NBA tells you the height of a player when they wear some sneakers where you get a few inches. Well, what's happened recently is that everybody got to make their height go from in socks to in shoes. But even with all that, the NBA is still at roughly half, half of what it was. It's been a precipitous decline. It is not unique to the NBA. It is happening, I think, to every sport that is not an event-based sport that has a lot of inventory. But it's obviously, I think, combined with some of their other issues, the load management, some of the political signaling did hurt them in 2020. I know a lot of people are in denial of that, which is weird because it just seems true. And the NBA certainly believes it's true. All of these factors combined, I think, to create a big fall off that in the end is not going to be represented as a failure to reap increased profits with the national deal, but is a tremendous fall off nonetheless, monetarily and also culturally. It's interesting to hear 50% of the overall audience, but there still could be a number that's 2x the previous deal. Half the viewers, twice the profits was a headline I once used. Yes. What's in it for NBC, ESPN, TNT, whoever is bidding on this that makes it still so valuable despite all that? I would direct people to the work of Ben Thompson at Stratechery because he has thought deeply about this and written some smart stuff. But it's this counterintuitive idea that, yes, people are cutting the cord. Yes, the audience for cable is shrinking. And that is what benefits the NBA counterintuitively. Because what ends up happening is that these broadcasters are looking for an anchor to windward, that they need something that at least is a guaranteed million viewers when they put it on on a weeknight. And while the NBA is not what it was in an ecosystem that's more challenged, where people are terrified of losing everything, suddenly it becomes this enticing potential overpay to just anchor the product, have something that is a signal that pokes out amid all the other noise. And maybe you can build other products off of that. And maybe you can try to build something towards the future. So that's the theory anyway, is this paradox of the shrinking cable viewership overall, the shrinking cable customer base actually leads to a situation wherein the broadcaster's actually want to pay more so for a diminishing product just because maybe that product isn't diminishing at the rate of some of these other products that seem completely replaceable, such as stuff you might see on network television. Yeah, we're big fans of Ben's work over here. And it's this counterintuitive idea where you assume that the fan is the customer. But in this case, there is a middle counterparty there where it is the networks. And those networks actually have different reasoning behind their decisions. 
it's just interesting once you think about it a little bit more and it can explain a lot of things. How big is the international market for the NBA? It's something that was referenced a lot. We had Daryl Morey on our podcast a few weeks ago. He obviously had some huge headlines a couple of years ago. How big of a role does that play? I want to get to that, but I wanted to add one more aspect. I call it fracking the pie as a mixed metaphor, why this pie that is shrinking can be fracked further and value can be derived out of it. There's also the component in a bidding war of Amazon getting rights to games. And we've seen that with the NFL and the viewership for those Amazon games, way less so than what it was before when those games were on traditional television. But when you ask some people, is this a disaster? They go, no, Amazon likes having all the data on the people who are watching the game. That is one of the reasons why Amazon will overpay for a product that is not going to be as watched as the product that was there before Amazon. Now onto the international aspect. What a saga, what a tangled web. You mentioned Daryl Morey, now president of the 76ers, used to run the Houston Rockets, shared a free Hong Kong meme on Twitter, if memory serves, which caused China to shut down everything with the NBA, which, I mean, you just think of that. Think of that, really. I think people, they haven't really absorbed what happened there. The NBA put over two decades of investment into China, showing games for free over there initially to try to build this bridge to greater profits. Companies have this embedded growth principle, this idea they need to always be growing perpetually. The NBA looked to China as the solution to that. They lost interest in America, in my opinion. They lost this idea that they could even grow the sport. It seems like they don't try. They don't care, which I think is a mistake, by the way, because that is where they get the lion's share of their profits. But I mean, I call this phenomenon, I've termed it the undecided whale, this idea that corporations, they become very distracted by this whale that's undecided that might choose them. And they start to focus on that more so than their established customer base that makes them profitable. The NBA did that with China and China ripped away the whole damn thing in an instant. Just done, gone, over. Maybe not over, maybe not over, but it's a different situation now. You hear that there's a thaw. You hear the NBA trying to rebuild that relationship. You read these headlines that they showed NBA games here or there. It's possible to rebuild that relationship, but it's never going to be the same because as you know, it's one thing to invest in something that you think is stable. You're willing to invest more in it. But if you now know, as the NBA naively did not know, that it can just go away like, boom, it's gone. You're never going to invest as much. The, I think, most underrated storyline in their China adventure, and I think it's because nobody wants to be rude about it, is that China wasn't very good at basketball in the end. And boy, did they try. The NBA invested in all these academies. Adam Silver at the 2019 finals was expressing his dismay over it and actually saying, I wish we could get some Chinese stars, which was weird in a way. He was talking about how they're trying to help the Chinese national team. It seemed very tone deaf. It seemed odd for an American commissioner to just be rending garments up there, complaining about how he can't get an adversarial superpower better at the Olympics so they can properly make money, but they couldn't do it. They tried. It's a fascinating failure in human capital and planning that you get two players from Japan, you get a player from Finland, you get a player from all these different far-flung countries of tiny populations, just not the most populous nation on earth, 
that's obsessed with basketball, wherein you're pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into academies precisely to make this happen. And the end result of that is that China is a very nationalistic country. It does love the NBA. It's on at a good time of day in the morning. But if you're running a nationalist country in an autocratic fashion, are you really into everybody just watching a bunch of Americans and people of other countries succeed, but nobody from your own country? I think that's a tough thing. And I think that is the underrated storyline in why beyond Daryl Morey offending them, this became, eh, take it or leave it for China and blew up in the NBA's face. Is there a sense of how big the market was for the NBA, like any measures in terms of how much the NBA was making from China? I saw estimates at 15%, but then I also got feedback that it wasn't quite 15%. In the aftermath of Mori, you heard hundreds of millions of dollars lost. It's not like we've seen that necessarily reflected in the BRI and the total revenue. I think China was always more of a plan and more of something to dream on than it was a major profit center, but it was one that had a lot of conditions attached to it. I think also, I mean, you would read these headlines where the NBA was building all these arenas in China, but it's tough to build in China if you're an outsider. It reminds of Stringer Bell on the Wire trying to build and do it through Clay Davis, who actually knows and manages to siphon money off of him. I think it was always a bit of a mistake-ridden imperial adventure for the NBA. And I don't think they made the sorts of profits, say, that Disney saw when Bob Iger went over there and forged a relationship. But they had stars in their eyes, and they were dreaming on massive profits. And to have that ended, or at least interrupted in a very damaging way, I think was quite a shock to the system. You could see the power, the size of the market when Yao Ming was in the league, and they would have these all-star votes. And the fan voting for Yao Ming was multiples higher than anyone else in the league. And it just showed the pure scale and size when you think about the country relative to the US, triple the size and a lot of power behind it. The hope was there. Going to be interesting to see how that evolves. I think you've been referencing the commissioner role, David Stern, how big of a role he had in the success of the league. Adam Silver has since transitioned, had to navigate several different, what I would consider to be crises in various forms. But it doesn't feel like he is the same type of commissioner versus what we have in the NFL. And we had this NFL breakdown and it was very clear, something that I learned there, that the commissioner worked for the owners. And you often see Roger Goodell basically taking bullets in PR and in the press at the expense of owners. And maybe they don't always agree with what he does, but he is put there on the platform to handle things that they don't necessarily have to. And with Silver, it feels like it's quite the opposite. What do you see just in terms of the different role that Silver has taken on and how he operates in the system and how that's maybe a little bit different from what you see elsewhere? The word on Silver is that his main focus is those broadcaster relationships that we discussed and getting those done, getting those inked, getting the business deals done. I think he's been a very bad commissioner overall. I have to say that. And I think he's going to get some credit when they sign this deal because it will be more than the last deal. But anybody could have done that. Anybody could have done that. Anybody could have walked into this negotiation session with half the viewership that he inherited. I mean, that's not an accomplishment to be able to do that. 
I think he's been a poor steward for the league because of his inherent weakness. He doesn't provide any sort of sense of structure in the way that Goodell does. It just seems that everybody does whatever they want. And if the players want to not play in games and that's just what they want, and that's cool because, hey, we're trying to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement. I don't want to ruffle feathers. And so I'm not going to say much about Ben Simmons basically leaving the Sixers because he doesn't feel like it. And I'll just let the Sixers handle that. The Sixers have our support. If they want to punish him and reclaim their money from him, we're not going to stop that from happening. But I don't want to be the bad guy. And I don't think that's how you run a company. I think David Stern, and he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. He made missteps. He was behind the whole China adventure that eventually didn't work out. But it at least presented the idea that there was a hand on the till. With Silver, it's just, I am popular with the players. I'm going to do what they want. And we're not going to have any sense of what we're about, of how we're marketing this league. It just seems very directionless. I do think and I know I'm editorializing. You were trying to get me to describe and I leapt into editorializing about it. But yeah, I mean, he's just not a presence. You don't feel him. On defense, in basketball, they say, make them feel you. Nobody feels Adam Silver. He's just there. It's a noticeable difference from what you see, but we can transition a little bit into the franchises and teams. It's also noticeable that in the NFL, you have these major ownership celebrities almost. Jerry Jones, Bob Kraft. These are owners that are fairly well-known, prominent, have a long history with the league. In the NBA, it feels a little bit different where the face of the owners, you have a lot of younger, a different generation perhaps, maybe not as strong as messaging. Jerry Jones was key in terms of negotiating media rights for the NFL. It's unclear whether that actually happens in the NBA or not. So, who owns the teams? Can you describe a little bit about what the ownership group looks like? I think you were tapping into it in the very beginning, but some background there is helpful. You're really pressing upon a good distinction, which is that the NBA has seen a generational shift. Stern was the commissioner during a time when the owners were more of those old money Jerry Jones types, and it was a more informal NBA. As the money's gotten bigger, you've got a lot of younger hungrier guys who are quants in their respective industries who are looking to make profits. Maybe you've got private equity people involved. It's less of that old world. It's less of that sense that you can know an owner. And it's ironic that Mark Cuban was maybe the first of them as this new money tech billionaire because Mark Cuban was such a personality. But the guys who have followed Mark Cuban have not been like Mark Cuban the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. And I think that was part of the story of the changeover from Stern to Silver is that the ownership was getting a little bit frustrated with Stern bossing them around. They wanted somebody a little more pliant. They wanted to call the shots. They didn't necessarily believe in the old ways. So while Stern did leave voluntarily, officially, there was an element of we would like to transition to Adam Silver. And I'm not sure why the NFL has kind of retained more of their old money character than the NBA has, but there's definitely been a shift where the NBA owner seems a little bit less knowable. Now, there is one other tech guy, VC guy, I should mention, is a big personality post-Cuban, and that is Joe Lacob, the owner of the Golden State Warriors, who's a tremendous character. 
just an absurd character. Somebody that I think a lot of people might dislike on occasion, but I kind of enjoy just because he's not making any bones about it. He's not pretending to be anything. He's very content to be what you might consider a jerk. And I think that's actually been pretty good because the owners are characters too. It's all one big TV show. You want as many good characters as possible. And I do think it helps the league to have a Jerry Jones and it helps the league to have a Joe Lacob. I know that's not the primary condition that you're looking for when you sell these teams, but I think it's a positive outcome when it happens. Absolutely. It is the entertainment business. So wherever you can get entertainment from, I think there's benefits to it. When you think about owning a team and all the benefits, I think there's certainly things that are intangible. But if we just start at the numbers, what does that look like? Just rough split from where they're getting their dollars from, whether it's the league media rights, local, selling tickets. It's so hard to know because we don't have access to their books completely, but the estimates have been told to me as such that it's about 60-40 television revenue to gate revenue. And among that television revenue, it's about two-thirds national broadcasters, national TV rights deal, and one-third regional sports network money. That's the breakdown. That's where they're getting their money. Those are the various revenue streams of it, how merchandise all comes into it. I'm not exactly sure. I just know that they split that 30 different ways. So there's no bigger take you get if you're the Golden State Warriors and Steph Curry is selling jerseys like crazy. It's going to wind up just as much in the pockets of the Atlanta Hawks as it is in your own. In 2014, a sales memo for the Los Angeles Clippers was made public. At the time, the Clippers generated about $150 million in overall revenue. 35% of that revenue came from ticket admissions, 35% from the national media deal, and 15% from the local TV contract. So roughly in line with what Ethan just described. But this was 2014 and based on the 2013 season, before the latest rights deals kicked in. So if you plug in some assumptions on that national deal and local TV deals, the Clippers likely grew sales by nearly $100 million just from media rights. And this partially explains why the franchise that generated $18 million in EBITDA in 2013 sold for $2 billion. If revenue grew 2x, EBITDA likely grew at multiples of that. There's certainly operating leverage in this business. But even adjusting for that growth, NBA franchise multiples don't seem to be tied to traditional valuation frameworks. Clearly, it represents something else to the owners. Why are they buying these teams for such outrageous values? It's a vanity purchase. Hey, we're making new billionaires all the time. We're not making new NBA franchises. We've got it at 30. Maybe we have expansion. There's talk of that. Although they've pumped the brakes a little bit on it of late, but a lot of rumors about Las Vegas, everything else. And those conditions are favorable to selling teams for more and more and more money. It's not now a profit center necessarily, but instead it's the biggest vanity purchase you can make. And it's one that you can hand down to your children and nobody can take it away. I mean, God would Knicks fans love if it could be taken away from James Dolan, but there's just no recourse. It's the ultimate trust fund for some of these people who not only want to be a big shot and sit on the sidelines and own the team. And then when you add the idea that you can just give it to your kids 
and nobody can take it away. I know the NBA does this stuff where they go, we've banned Donald Sterling for life and we've pushed out Robert Sarver. They can only do that with some agreement and some let go of the fight from whoever they're trying to push out. That's what gives it, I think, its tremendous value and creates conditions by which the prices continue to go up, even as we say, the viewership goes down. You can see that challenge that the NBA has faced in the past, but also in the NFL right now with Daniel Snyder, how hard it is to pry away a team from an owner. sets all types of precedents, but there is not too many things in that governing contract which allow you to do that. It does make me wonder, the whole concept is built on owning something, I guess it's like art, but it kind of lends into greater fool theory. If you actually want to sell this thing, you need the next person to pay a higher price. And I wonder if we ever see the end of that. But you mentioned expansion, something that's possible. I hadn't heard much about what's going on there, what's developing there. What would be the reasoning behind it? And then how do the mechanics of that actually work? Are people literally just buying into the league? Yeah. But then the money is distributed to the other owners. So you get a nice little haunch of money from doing that. But then you've got to change everything else up about your league. And the NBA did this back, and I think you could say it was some mixed success when they expanded. Try to remember all the teams they expanded into the Canadian teams, Vancouver Grizzlies, yep, Toronto. So we could say some mixed success. That's the idea with the expansion is you dilute the product, you frack the pie, as I'm trying to coin, but you make some more money, and some owners might be interested in that. Far more interested, I think, than in, say, in the NFL pushing a guy like Snyder out. Why would I want to do that if I'm an owner? You could say morally, he's a bad guy and he creates bad PR for your league, but I would go, okay, he's a bad owner who tends to lose. Why would I want to make it easier for the league to push somebody like myself out? And I might get somebody who's more likely to block my path to a Super Bowl. Why would I want to vote for that? That's the incentive structure right there and why maybe it's a little bit easier to do something as tough as expansion than it might be to push out an owner forcibly. Yeah, the dirty truths. When there's something like expansion, I guess some of the existing franchises have sold for north of $2 billion, $3 billion. You hear numbers in that territory. Is that the context for what a new franchise would look like? I think so. That would be the baseline. Now, we're maybe in a time of some economic turbulence, and we're starting to see something a little different of late that I think has been underrated where these team sales are happening. And then you start hearing rumors and you start seeing reports that whoever bought the team doesn't have all of the money or one of their minority owners doesn't have all of the money. Now, maybe this is more noise than signal. Maybe we'll look back at the Silicon Valley bank run and we'll say, yeah, that was a weird thing that happened but it didn't really mean anything about anything. And maybe we'll say, oh, that was the first indicator of a real collapse born out of speculation. To what you're saying, that is the baseline right now. And I think the Suns sold for something, what was it, between $3 billion and $4 billion. I mean, what's a billion here, a billion there? But you also, when these sales are happening or hearing that not everybody, the Timberwolves sale happens, then you start hearing people going, I don't know if A-Rod really has the money. <laughs> I don't know if Alex Rodriguez, who was one of the owners of the Timberwolves, I don't know if he really has the money. It's always interesting to see. You have majority ownership, and then you have minority owners. 
And then also there's usually some financing that has to play a role in there. Not everybody just has $2 billion sitting in a checking account. Good opportunity to transition to players. NBA, arguably the biggest stars across any of the various sports. And some of that feels like it's by design. You take something like the NFL, where players are playing in helmets, and something like the NBA, where you're pretty much unclothed. You can't be in a crowd and not stand out. That has something to do with height and just the game itself. But it does feel like it's a little bit more by design, where the players are very much marketed. How does that actually play a role in the league and the power of the players within the league? Because it certainly feels like NBA players have a lot more power than the players across any of the other leagues. Yeah, it's the best thing and the worst thing about the NBA. It's the gift and the curse. It's part of what fascinates me, part of why I went down this road of writing more business stories, because they're not just business stories. They're stories of personalities. They're stories often of a young man who suddenly, in his early 20s, is worth potentially billions of dollars to people just by what he does out there. I mean, the NFL is not even like that. That's an NBA thing. And when Steph Curry was on his rise with Under Armour before he crashed and burned with Under Armour for complicated reasons, Morgan Stanley was saying he might be worth $12 billion to Under Armour, to say nothing of whatever he was worth to the NBA. And that was in his 20s. I mean, he was worth a lot. He probably was worth billions. I mean, talk about the TV rights deal that we just mentioned. The NBA, after Michael Jordan was in a serious decline and they were really scuffling. They signed that deal in 2007, I mentioned. And again, I can't remember off the top of my head, was it 800, 900 million, something like that. A lot less than 2.7 billion that they make now that they signed in 2014. How much of that was LeBron James coming along and lending some interest in a new story, becoming a guy people hated in 2010 to 2011, you could make an argument that LeBron was not just worth billions to the NBA, but worth tens of billions over the lifetime of the deal. And we're talking RSNs, we're talking everything else, and that's just one guy. You end up with a situation where a young man needs to be integrated into an overall team structure and an overall franchise structure. And he's not going to achieve whatever he wants to achieve individually if he refuses to do that. But at the same time, he has such power and such leverage that everybody has to tiptoe around him and walk on eggshells. We saw it recently with John Morant of the Memphis Grizzlies. John Morant, he is the guy who's been tapped to be the next great American superstar. Nobody from his generation appears to have the marketing potential he has just by virtue of the incredible highlights. It's hard to explain. You just have to watch it. I know when I bring it up, people come up with other names potentially from this generation. But no, I mean, the superstars from this generation, some of them are from other countries, which puts a marketing cap on them domestically. People can argue with that, but it's just true. And he's run into trouble with the law, personal trouble recently at a strip club where he was showing off guns. And you look at it, you go, this is a multi-billion dollar disaster for Nike and the NBA. Not that that's your primary consideration if you care about Morant as a person, but that isn't one guy, all of that just being thrown into the fire. But also the fact of that 
that leverage, that power has maybe informed the way that he has been dealt with and indulged that has led him to make such terrible decisions that everybody around him is just validating whatever he wants to do. And you even see it in the absence of harsh words when he's acting in this manner. Stuff that you would expect, just harsh moral language of somebody really flying off the ethical rails, but you're not seeing that. Not from Adam Silver, certainly. He hasn't, to our recording right now, has not said anything about it. And the Grizzlies, they almost sound like they're complimenting him. And Nike is complimenting him. The Nike statement is complimenting him for his accountability. Those precise conditions, you could argue, are related to why he's flying off those rails. But it's all happening because of the unusual circumstance of an individual, a young man, in the case of the NBA, being worth billions of dollars to other people. Yeah, Morant feels to me like the closest comparison to Iverson when he was coming up in the league and was this cultural movement. And anytime you watched him in a game, he was doing something that you just couldn't believe. And it's not that he is this overpowering size, and that's part of what makes it so unbelievable to watch. But you had someone in place at the commissioner level that certainly made changes when Iverson came into the league. There was the famous changes to the dress code and tightening things up and trying to improve the image. And that was met with mixed emotions. But it always felt like there was at least a balancing of power there. How much do you think it matters for the league's talent to be from the US in terms of driving the success? And one of the things that is interesting that you mentioned you had the Jordan era, kind of had the LeBron era. And I would argue that the talent in the league feels like it's as strong as ever. But a lot of the most talented players are Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, Luka Doncic, not American-born players. And I'm just wondering if that has an impact on the overall value of the league. It does, and it's hilarious. It's one of those movies where a Faustian bargain happens where somebody rubs the monkey's paw or asks the mischievous genie for their greatest wish and receives it not in the way that they actually wanted, where the NBA goes, oh God, if we could only have international superstars to spread our brand globally and rake in profits from around the world. And then the genie goes, yes, here are your superstars from Slovenia from Greece and from Serbia. There you go. You're welcome, NBA. You're welcome. The NBA did not want these guys to be from these places, but these places just happen to be the places that produce the superstars. Credit to the countries, credit to the superstars. Giannis from Greece, Jokic from Serbia, Doncic from Slovenia. For whatever reason, especially the Yugoslavian, the old Yugoslavian region that where these countries, a total 20 million in population, just seems to be a serious concentration of basketball talent. It's not really doing anything for the league profit-wise. And unfortunately, on the other side of it, there is a cultural barrier there. And as much as people running institutions are international in their perspective, I think they project it upon the viewer, upon the customer. And they think that they share values with those people and they're like, no, yeah, nobody cares where a guy is from. No, people feel more of a common bond to their own countrymen. You can call it xenophobic. I would just call it realistic that for a nation to matter at all, people are going to feel something for somebody from their nation. Guess what? We see it every four years with the World Cup. It's a tremendous 
driver of interest and attachment. It is what it is. I think the NBA was so cynical as to be naive in thinking that they could just internationalize themselves and experience no cost at home. I think they thought it in some ways because there were so few international players that they almost seemed American because they were incorporated into the broader thing that Hakeem Olajuwon went to college in the US and was part of this big college program that Dirk Nowitzki was hilarious and he was just this great personality and spoke English impeccably and so he felt American and I don't think they were prepared for guys who come in the league from the Balkans and just don't really seem to communicate that much with the media and we don't have a sense of who they are or what they're about and it's no diminishment of them or whatever they've accomplished but it is a serious challenge for the NBA to market them in the country that has made the NBA wealthy, which is the United States. Adam Silver perhaps should look at the US in the way that he looked at China as a place he would want to produce more superstars because it's been taken as a given for so long, taken for granted for so long. But if the NBA starts to produce fewer superstars, yes, that is going to hurt its ability to connect with its audience in still the wealthiest country on earth with a huge population and the place that basketball is from. And how much do players themselves generate from their salaries versus from a shoe contract, from any other types of endorsements? And I know it's going to vary by the level of the player, but we can start at the upper echelon, a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant. Do you know what that split looks like? It's so hard because there's a lot of BS in those reported numbers where they'll say it's a billion dollar contract with Nike or Kevin Durant, 250 million with Nike. I think the ultimate comparison you want to look at is Michael Jordan, who makes over a hundred million dollars a year from the sale of his sneakers and other apparel. And that over a hundred million a year, that was 10 years ago. It's probably way more than that. That every year is more than the entirety of his NBA earnings combined. He makes so much more from Nike than he did when he was at the height of the profession from actually playing for his NBA team. And I do think that in many instances at the top of the top, the apparel check rivals or exceeds the NBA check. It's a little confounded because Steph Curry got paid in equity by Under Armour to a certain extent. Some of these guys are getting paid in equity and they're under no obligation to show us the actual details of the deals. I remember LeBron, it was reported his initial deal out of high school with Nike was reported to be $90 million and people had sticker shock off of that. But I think Nike was quite happy in the end that they signed it. I think very few guys earn more from the apparel companies than they do from their team. But the absolute top tier, they earn as much or more. And then you start asking the question, who is their real employer? If you look at LeBron James, he's played for all these different teams. He's only been with Nike. He has a lifetime deal with Nike. Conceivably, if you just play that out, he's going to make more from Nike than he's going to make from any of these teams. So whatever Nike's consideration is might matter more to LeBron James than whatever his team wants. And in the case of Kevin Durant, he was behind LeBron at Nike. He wanted to be the face of Nike. All these guys want that. That's the ultimate for them. And I know Nike wanted him with the Golden State Warriors when he was with the Thunder. That's something that Nike wanted to happen desperately. 
did they influence Kevin in making that decision? He would never say so. He would never say they influenced them, but we know that that's what they wanted. We know that that's something that the league really can't, I think, do much about is Lynn Merritt or a major executive at Nike going, hey, if you join this team, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you that, we're going to pay you more. I don't think the NBA has access to those books. It's a potential confounder of the standard relationships and just one of these NBA shadow world topics that I love to uh, plumb that I don't think you see talked about in a lot of other places. Are there other ways that that influence would show up besides picking which team or which market to play in? What do you mean by that? Is there anything that would impact gameplay or which games you're playing or anything else? Let's say hypothetically, there was a player, a top draft pick, and he was injured earlier in the season. And hypothetically, this particular player had it in his contract with the apparel company that if he reached this or that benchmark, he would get paid a lot more money by them. If you make all rookie, if you reach this statistical benchmark, that statistical benchmark, and hypothetically, that rookie looked at the situation, he could have come back midseason and went, mm, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to run it back the next season because of the benchmarks in my sneaker contract. That's a potential hypothetical way that the deal with the apparel giant can influence the decisions made by the players. There are so many fascinating things going on behind the scenes, just in terms of the league, the media, the way it's covered, how it's covered, and you tap into all of that. When you think about competition for the league, it does feel like players are unhappy. The league is certainly hitting a plateau or at least struggling from a viewership standpoint. When you look at what's happening on the outside, something like the PGA Tour, one of the unique things there was similarly, you had individual players who had much bigger impact on the overall success of the tour, or in this case, the league. There's only five people on the court. It's much different than an NFL team. Individual players matter more. That gives individual players more power. PGA Tour was a unique situation where you saw this defect. Is there any competition to the league as a whole in terms of losing talent or seeing talent go in other directions? Or is it simply other sports and other pieces of entertainment, which are the risks? There are always people throwing out hypotheticals of what a rival NBA league would be. But I think it's just different from golf in that the sheer infrastructural advantage that the NBA has of being in the United States. To, again, nationalism, national feeling. These players don't want to play in Canada. That's a huge issue for them. It's very hard for the Raptors to get American players to come play in Canada. It's a little hard for me to see Saudi Arabia or Qatar or whoever forming a league outside the boundaries of this nation, which I think would almost have to happen given the contractual entanglements to rival the NBA and to get the players competing in that way. Right now, you're in the United States, richest country on earth, with all this built-in brand equity. You've got all the deals with the arenas and everything else. I just think it's a bigger challenge in basketball than it is in golf where, hey, yeah, there's Pebble Beach, there's Torrey Pines, there's Augusta. These places are special, but we can find you a golf course. We can find you a golf course. It's a little easier to find a golf course than it is 20,000 person arenas and places these guys want to be in. If the league is 
significantly more successful in five years from now, what do you think the main drivers would be? We talking more viewership because they're going to sign the TV deal. I'm trying to conceptualize what more successful means. I think some of it's marketing. I don't understand how this league is marketed. There was real marketing back in the day. Nike did a lot of the legwork. That's kind of a happy accident sometimes when another corporation does for you what you want it to do for them. Nike was the recipient of that in the early days of Kyrie Irving. Pepsi created this brilliant ad campaign for Uncle Drew where Kyrie dressed in a disguise as an old man and then wowed and shocked people. So Nike got to draft off of Pepsi's good work. So I think the NBA did that with Nike, although it had just much better marketing. And nowadays, it's just also directionless and amorphous. And they need the top marketers of the sport to find a message that resonates. And if you get those two things done, I think a lot of the rest will fall into place. Because as you've said, there's a lot of talent. And I wonder if a lot of the ennui and unhappiness, as you mentioned, is from operating within a structure that just feels amorphous and untethered from any tradition. That's what Damian Lillard was almost expressing on JJ Reddick's podcast of how the NBA is just falling apart in that way. So this is all very touchy-feely. It needs to kind of establish a strong culture of what it is. Stop catering to the wants of this or that individual player. Maybe start defining what the individual players need to do to grow their brand to grow the league, which was certainly the perspective the league had in the 1990s when Michael Jordan regarded himself as an ambassador of the National Basketball Association. Are there other good examples of what that good marketing looked like in the late 90s or even early 2000s? I think the I love this game ad campaign was a good ad campaign. And it was selling the idea of the spontaneous joy of basketball. And I'm sure there was more thought behind the whole thing. And somebody could really break it down. But sometimes it's just a really simple message that connects and captures the sentiment of the time. Back then, it was that. I think a lot of it, again, it's not so much the marketing. It's just people want somebody to feel like they're in control of what's happening. I mean, the best moment for Adam Silver was his first moment. It's when he took over and he said that, Old, crazy, racist Clippers then-owner Donald Sterling was banned for life. The players were really putting the heat to him, and it's debatable as to how much he did. He did something out of the ordinary. But one of the reasons why it resonated with people is the sense of, yeah, this guy's in charge. And I think he took the wrong lesson from it. I think he took the lesson of, I should always do what the players want. Well, yeah, in that case, you did what the players wanted. But you also presented as somebody who is in charge of their sport. And the latter, I think for the public, for fans, that's what matters more. You don't have to be draconian. You don't need to be David Stern. You just need to offer the sense of there is a structure in place. We have rules. You can't break the rules. If you break the rules, then you're going to face consequences. Right now, the league just feels like something that people can show up to or not show up to, care about or not care about, try in the all-star game or not try in the all-star game. That sort of thing needs to change if this league is going to get more popular and reverse its course. So it's really more of a cultural transformation on the league level, I think, that it needs to take on rather than the marketing strategy. But once the first thing happens, the second thing gets a lot easier. Yeah, it seems like they're all intertangled. And I think you've seen it a lot with Formula One. And I think Ben Thompson wrote 
about that recently, comparing where the NBA can take lessons from Formula One. But I would say that even traces all the way back to the NFL and what the NFL has done so well since the early days of having NFL films and putting all of this extra media effort into putting a gloss on the product, hard knocks, basically investing into anything. It matters. People dismiss it like it doesn't matter, but it matters. Everything matters. Everything you can do to market your sport. If you're being lazy, you just never know who's watching. You never know when you can create a fan who then talks to other people, how you can just connect everybody together. I mean, all this stuff matters and the NFL takes it seriously. I would direct everybody to watch the NFL marketing of an AFC championship game between the Patriots and the Jaguars from a few years ago, narrated by John Malkovich. It is epic. It's self-aware. It's clever. They must have turned it around in a week because they didn't know what the matchup was going to be. And it is so far beyond the marketing vision of the NBA. And you can say, hey, it's the people love football, 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 football. They'll never turn against football. But I also think part of the NFL success story is prioritizing the little things like that and hard knocks and NFL films. You don't see that kind of hustle from the NBA. And I think that's part of why the NBA has lost ground in an era wherein the NFL has maintained its position. You made me even think about the broadcasters. And we've seen in the NFL these huge contracts shelled out to Troy Aikman's, Tony Romo's. And I questioned it a bit, but we even spent a Super Bowl heavily critiquing Greg Olson about every word because he might be replaced by Tom Brady. And I can't think of one instance of that with the NBA. It just feels like you show up to the broadcast and you're going to get who you're going to get. I think Mike Breen is excellent. I think Kevin Harlan is excellent. But where they've slacked is the Greg Olson kind of commentary, the color commentary, the former player. They haven't gotten guys who are great as explainers and also entertaining. And you don't always need it. Sometimes we just want a personality People don't watch Charles Barkley after the game because they think he's going to explain the pick and roll coverage. They love him because he's the funniest non-comedian in American history, possibly. So it doesn't necessarily need to always be that, but they just haven't taken themselves seriously in the way the NFL has. And that's been to their detriment. And part of trying to solve this issue would be to have better broadcasting. And part of that would be also bullying ESPN and presenting the product better. We wrap up these conversations with trying to pull out lessons that can be applied elsewhere. Is there anything that sticks out with the NBA from its history or maybe its more recent history that you can say is a real theme to be thinking about anytime you're looking at any business? Some of these themes are themes that you always see where you get a little fat, you get a little happy, and you get complacent. I think the NBA is a story of being complacent, but I think it's also a story of not learning the lessons of what made you successful. Sometimes companies can over-rely on those lessons and chase it to their detriment. I think Nike did that when it didn't accept Steph Curry as a rising superstar. They looked at Michael Jordan. They said, well, the guys who sell shoes for us are like Michael Jordan and you're not Michael Jordan. But the other side of that, I think one of the biggest underrated stories, which you referenced, is that the NBA was in a bit of a death spiral after Michael Jordan. Huge fall off. It was a problem. And they reversed it. 
sports usually do not reverse their declines. It is, I think, a miracle that has not been heralded. I have theories on why it's not been heralded. I think people are uncomfortable with potential implications of that it succeeded. You mentioned the dress code. I think a lot of people in media are understandably uncomfortable with something like the dress code. And they don't necessarily want to tell a story where the dress code at least correlated with the sport pulling itself out of the fire. Was it the biggest part of whatever happened? I don't think so. I think the biggest part of whatever happened was the NBA looking at the rules and going, the game has become bogged down. We need to change our very structure. We need to change our rules. From there, you see the Phoenix Suns. You see the offensive revolution of the sport. You see the sport get more popular. The NBA did all of this to rescue itself and then forgot all about it. I think in part, again, because the media didn't want to tell the story of it, but they forgot all about this miracle that they had created. And I think it led them to a place of complacency and it caused them to repeat some of their old errors. And hey, it's that cliche, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Whatever you want to say, that is part of the NBA story. It's about concocting this huge rise from the 1980s as we started off with, then falling off after the 90s then rescuing itself with this Herculean effort on multiple fronts to get it back to near where it was with Jordan, then forgetting about it, thinking that they're going to just print money in China and letting the whole thing kind of unravel and making enough money during that time to where no one's going to face much of a punishment for losing half the customers. Boom. There you go. That's the entire arc. I think you just made me more bullish on baseball because they've made quite a few rule changes over the past two off seasons. And Sounds like they are taking their struggles head on. So maybe that's my takeaway here. But this has been excellent. Ethan, thank you for your time, for your knowledge, for all the insights in terms of how the system actually works. I appreciate you joining us. This was my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 